So, good evening again, everyone. And this is the third in my series of talks on the seven factors of awakening. Uh, I believe the other two are on Dharma Seed, so if you want to see them, you can go there, and at some point I'll have all three of them on my website as well. So, um, the first talk was on the seven factors as well as mindfulness. Last time was on the three activating factors, and tonight will be on the three calming factors. And for those of you who may not have been here for the other ones, just as a short intro, the seven factors um, are considered to be, uh, well, they're very um, prevalent part of the teachings in all three lineages of Buddhism, Theravadan, Mahayana, of which Zen is part, and then the Vajrayana, Tibetan Buddhism. So they're, they're really um, one of the few things that is really consistent across all the traditions. And um, the two understandings of the seven factors are firstly that they can lead to awakening. So they're factors we can cultivate as part of our journey of unfoldment and deepening in our practice. And that they're also descriptions of, of the um, liberated state. So they serve kind of both of those, those um, purposes. And um, they're so valuable that they're known sometimes as, as the inner wealth of Buddhism. And they're, they're seen as um, things that can offset the hindrances and the defilements. So we look at them as, uh, can we feed the seven factors? And, and uh, you know, there's a story Jack Cornfield tells. It's from the shamanic traditions of, if you look at a, a, a pack of wolves and the, and the puppies, the wolf pups, which the ones that get bigger, the ones that get fed. And so what are we feeding in our life? Are we feeding these factors of awakening and wholesome qualities like the paramis? Or are we feeding the hindrances and the defilements? Where are we, um, you know, what are we giving our attention to? So um, the first talk, I talked about the factor of mindfulness, which balances the other two sort of categories of factors. Last time I talked about the activating factors. So these are seen as factors that um, can offset sluggishness. And um, they're a little bit more oriented to Vipassana, although all of the factors apply to all, the, all practices in Buddhism. And the three factors I talked about last time were investigation, energy, and joy. And I have been borrowing from Gil Fronstel, who has been a teacher of mine for decades, along with Guy Armstrong. And um, Gil gives us one word that is kind of a pointer for each of the factors. So I'll just go through what those are again. So for mindfulness, the word is, is here, here. For investigation, the word is, is what? What am I investigating? What is arising? The word for effort is this. So this is what I'm going to pay attention to. This is where I'm going to place my 
my effort in my of my awareness and joy the one word is yes saying yes to what's arising in our experience i really like those one word pointers there you know give us another way of really feeling into what that factor is um, is pointing us to so tonight i'm going to talk about the factors that are um are calming and um, the calming factors can offset agitation in our practice um, you know thinking mind rising mind and they also uh, can be an offset for you know for anxiety that the activating factors can be an offset for things like like depression and when we have sinking mind in our practice and the um, the calming factors can offset anxiety and so the three calming factors then are um, are tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So I'll go through each of these and then and then talk about how they fit together overall. So um, tranquility, the the one word for this one is is ease. And one of the things about meditation and, and um, Buddhism is that it's not just about what we're doing but how we're going about doing it and i see this a lot when i'm teaching the samatha practice that people can get into a lot of striving and you know sort of pushing their practice and it becomes just like can i sit through this until the bell rings you know sort of thing and i've been there i get it so um you know we all do that but can we bring a sense of ease to our practice on the cushion as well as to our life? And these factors, they're called the seven factors of awakening, which makes them sound very lofty, but um, they really are very practical for how we live our life too. So am I bringing, um, bringing a sense of ease to the world? How am I showing up? And what am I spreading in the world? Am I spreading a sense of like, you know, pushing, or can I spread a sense of ease? And boy, do we need something like this nowadays. I mean, we, we need it more than ever. So, um, so tranquility can, um, can be felt in the body when we're relaxed. And, and there's a lot of research to show that even taking three deep belly breaths does so much for our nervous system to just calm and de-escalate our whole nervous system. I read a, 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 an article uh, about Navy SEALs using a thing called box breathing. So this is, if you have any friends who are like, oh, meditation, you know, and they think it's very sort of, you know, airy-fairy, tell them about the Navy SEALs who are doing the box breathing and, you know, as they're going out on missions. Um, and because it works. So it's, you know, they do it in a particular way, but it's, we're, the neuroscience really shows us that just paying some attention to some deep belly breaths does a huge service to our nervous system and to ease and calming down the system. So this really does, it's something we can feel in the body and it happens naturally as the mind slows down. And this is where this analogy of the 
the pebble in the pond and the, the waves rippling out, you know, at some point they, they slow down and the pond becomes just like glass again. And don't we wish that happened every time in our meditation? It's not, you know, guaranteed or anything, but this is a way we can feel into that potential of the ease and the calming. And we can have, we can even be at ease with unease. So when I was talking about how thoughts don't have to be a problem, that, you know, if we make it a problem, there's already a sense of unease there. And we can be with our thoughts. I mean, we're not attending to them as the object necessarily, but thoughts can arise. And rather than fighting with them, we can allow them and, um, and just not give them extra energy. And um, I know in this in Samatha practice, a lot of times, and in Vipassana too, there's there's a sense of like, do I need to push the thoughts away? And we really don't need to do that. Um, what we can do is just do the practices as they're as they're designed with the samatha. We come back to the breath with vipassana. We notice what the thought is without going into it and getting identified. If we use labeling, we can put a label on it. Or if we use, um, you know, just noticing, we can just notice what that thought pattern is and and not you know get caught up in it and identified with it. So this is where the word ease can really make some space for that. Just, you know, as we're sitting, if we find we're getting tense or tight or in life, if we're out, you know, in traffic or something's not going quite the way we wanted it to for the day, just to use that point or just the word ease, ease. And you can kind of, you know, feel a little bit of a, a, a taste of serenity with that word ease. And in life, really ease is about, the tranquility is about not fighting life, not fighting with what's happening. We can certainly, if something's happening that's unjust or that we want to change, we want to go about um, change and addressing those things, but can we do even that with a sense of really being in ourselves and yet they're being eased and not a sense of contraction. You know, that's what the fighting against it brings is a sense of, of contraction where we can't, it's hard to really be in ourselves and be landed. So that's tranquility. The next is concentration. And, uh, and the word, the, the Pali word is samadhi, as you probably know. And um, it's kind of interesting to note that this is the sixth factor. It's not the first factor. So, you know, a lot of times people, like I remember when I first got into meditation, I told my parents and my mom said, oh, I tried that once, but I was just thinking all the time. You know, and I, I later I came to, to realize everybody's thinking all the time, mom, you know, this is how we all start out. You're not doing it wrong because this is happening. But, you know, I think for a lot of us, we have this idea that if we meditate, we're just supposed to not be thinking ever. You know, the first time we sit down to meditate, that's supposed to be happening. And, I, you know, sometimes I work with new people who come in and they think somehow they're they can't do it like my mom thought, or they're doing it wrong if they find that they're thinking, this is normal. This is normal. This this is part of um, 
in my teaching, I talk about the surf zone, which is the zone where in, in scuba diving, um, all the waves are crashing. And I used to be a scuba diver for years. And there was a thing called beach dives where you go down there with all this heavy equipment on and your mask and your fins and you'd walk backwards into the ocean trying not to fall down as the waves are just coming at you. And that's what the hindrances and defilements are, is like these waves, you know, and sometimes you do get hit with one, you fall down and your mask falls off, you know, as a scuba diver, your fins might fall off and you have to get back up and collect yourself and, and go back in. And um, it's normal. This is normal practice for all of us. So this is where, you know, we're building a capacity for concentration. It's something that we build just like going to the gym. We can't expect that we're going to be, you know, really masters of it until we've done it for a while. So um, concentration, the word that, that Gil uses for this is, is steady steady so are we just steadily with our object and um, concentration is um, it, unfortunately it's a word we use in our everyday language and it has a lot of striving and unease associated with it so i'd encourage you to put that to the side but the, the definition I like the most of concentration is, is unification of mind. So this is really where the mind stream is coming together. And um, every meditation has objects of that meditation. Having an object that we're putting our awareness on um, allows the mind stream to come together. In Vipassana, the objects may be changing if we're in the choiceless awareness stage of Vipassana, but the present moment, what's arising in the present moment is, the, is what's constant with every meditation. Vipassana, the objects change. In Samatha, you have one object to the exclusion of everything else, but concentration is being developed in any meditation practice. So this is really where you know, the mind stream starts to settle and come together. And it's like, um, like lifting a weight. So, you know, you already have a muscle here, just like you already have the faculty of concentration. You don't need to go out and get that. It's already part of your consciousness naturally. And all of the seven factors are considered to be inherent. So you don't need to go out and get that, but it's like how much exercise, you know, has this muscle gotten? So when you go to the gym and you lift weights, you're building that muscle. And this is really what's happening with, with all of the factors of concentration. We have to lift that weight for a while to really have the concentration um, deepen. And you know, there's a lot of um, all of the things that take us off of our object of meditation are are parts of our conditioning that are there for reasons. You know, the psychologically, the the ego self is made up of self images of who and what we think we are, of defense mechanisms, of um, beliefs and body identifications all of these things are part of what takes us off the object so we're getting to see that conditioning when we sit down to meditate and um, 
and these can be really, really compelling. But when we start getting a taste of concentration and that ease that comes with it, uh, it can be very satisfying. And even off the cushion, when we're not meditating, if we really become absorbed in a task, like a lot of people, um, you know, will have hobbies that they enjoy. This is one of the reasons that extreme sports are considered to be compelling to a lot of people because when you're on, you know, on a mountainside, like I go to Yosemite every couple of years and I like to watch the climbers on El Capitan and, um, you know, why would someone do that? Well, they are very, very present when they're going up the side of El Capitan, you know, they, they, it's something that is so compelling. You know, and there's a certain kind of, I guess, adrenaline when you're doing extreme sports like that because you feel really alive because you have to be in the present moment. So um, this is really, you know, it can be very satisfying to be absorbed in what we're doing. And um, so this is what we're cultivating on the cushion. You know, when we're using meditation objects for the concentration, it's not quite as exciting as, you know, climbing a mountainside, but that sense of satisfaction of just really being present with what, what we're attending to can be very, um, very satisfying. And um, so, you know, there are different ways in Buddhism to cultivate concentration. Um, in the Samatha practices, we, we really have one object that we're coming back to over and over and having the simplicity of that object, especially like with the Anapanasati and in the Samatha, we're, we're noticing between the upper lip and the nostril. So it's a small area. It's a little harder to be um, aware of, but that actually is good because it brings the mind stream together in a way that, you know, kind of uh, makes you really notice when you're lost in, in thought. In Vipassana, you know, we have different categories of objects that we're with and, um, and we're cultivating the, ability, cultivating the ability to stay with different objects as they come into our awareness so that we can be present with whatever's arising without having to push away the unpleasant without getting attached, overly attached to the pleasant and without falling asleep when things are neutral. Just, you know, staying with that present moment um, experience and um, having a sense of interest, but not identification with what's arising. And then in practices like the Brahma Viharas, we're with different objects that have to do with a person. So in metta, we're with the person's goodness and our well wishes for them and, and so on. So um, all of these, and the Buddha gave us 40 objects of meditation. So, you know, there's a lot of different objects that we can use for our practice, but, you know, what they have in common is they're helping us collect the mind stream in this way of concentration. And then the, the next factor is equanimity. So, um, and this is upeka. And the word for equanimity, so uh, in, the, in, this, in the calming factor so far, we have tranquility, which is ease. 
bringing ease to what we're doing. Concentration, we have steady. I'm with my object in a steady way. And the next, this last factor then is equanimity. And equanimity is considered to be really the kind of the, the crown jewel of the seven factors of awakening. And the word for equanimity is okay. It's okay. Whatever's happening, I can be okay with it. Even if what's happening isn't okay, I can be okay in myself. So um, equanimity, uh, part of it is stability that you know, we have a certain kind of stability of our experience. And, and we can notice this like when we're stable physically, how much support that gives us in our life. If we're healthy, you know, well fed, you know, we're going to be much more stable than say if we're ill or if we're compromised in life. It's hard to really have equanimity without some sense of stability with with emotional stability, we can really cultivate that in our practice, be less reactive, have more inner balance and be less triggered. And we can see what's arising with less reactivity. And this is really one of the great gifts of Vipassana is to let us be with whatever is arising and have equanimity with it. This is a big thing that's being cultivated there because we're with whatever's in our experience without without getting overly attached or pushing it away and just having that sense of okay i can be with this i can be with what's arising and this then leads to a sense of um and a capacity of wisdom that we can see the conditions rise and pass without reacting out of our conditioning without reacting automatically and compulsively this is, this is part of what the equanimity is cultivating, is this kind of wisdom to, um, to be able to be with life's arisings and passings without getting whipped around so much that we can be okay even if what's happening isn't really okay. We're okay inside, inside of us. And we can get some space from our habitual reactions to what's happening. Equanimity, um, as I said, this is sort of the crown jewel and, and in a lot of the different um, lists and descriptions in Buddhism, it's really considered that one of the you know, highest possibilities for us is to have equanimity in the face of whatever is happening in life. And it's not indifference. Sometimes you know, I'll talk to people who don't know Buddhism much and they'll sort of equate it as, as like, I just don't feel anything or, you know, I'm, diff I'm indifferent to life and what's happening. That's not what it is. It's really a, more of a state of, of inner flow and being fluid with what's happening, but still being in contact with our experience. Equanimity doesn't mean we're not in contact with it. If anything more, if anything, we could be more in contact with our experience because we don't have to like pull away and deaden ourselves from the present moment. Um, I've been doing some other teaching on the Brahma Viharas and um, 
the Brahma Viharas are great practices for being able to be in the present moment when there's different difficult interpersonal things happening either with other people or within ourselves. A lot of times we really have to leave the present moment and I know with all that's happening in the world it's hard for people to be with some of this and this is where the Brahma Vihara of compassion um, really allows us if we can feel the compassion arising when their suffering is present, then we don't have to leave the present moment. So, you know, the Brahma Viharas can be great practices for allowing us to cultivate equanimity, which is, you know, the fourth and usually considered the most difficult Brahma Vihara, but it allows us to be in touch with what's actually happening in the moment without having to shut down our hearts. So it's not indifference. If anything, it lets us be more present to what's actually happening and more um, have more trust that, I, you know, I may not know why this is happening. I may never know why, but I can still be here. I don't have to shut down or leave or turn away from what's arising. So there's a sense of, of really... Um, of stability with what is and being able to really be here and be be kind of generous with our with our presence for whatever's happening for ourselves for another person for the world even if it's difficult and zen they they talk about this as the as the the suchness or the isness that you can like when i am really in touch with equanimity I can feel like there's a certain perfection in the imperfection. You know, not that, again, not that we don't need to change things or, uh, you know, act for climate change and for human rights and other things. We, we can certainly take active action if we take it from a place of, um, that includes equanimity, we can do it without being reactive and triggered. And that has a lot more strength in it than coming from a place of, of uh, triggeredness and, and instability. We can't be wise if we're coming from a place of instability. So um, to me, I really, um, I heard a definition once of enlightenment that I really liked, which was that with full enlightenment, it doesn't matter what's happening to that person. They can be equanimous no matter what's happening to them or to the world around them, that they are unshakable in that equanimity. And, and um, that seems like a really worthwhile aspiration to be able to really be present in the world and, and have a place inside that is, uh, that is un to really be in touch with that unconditioned aspect of what we are of our deeper nature that is indestructible uh you know the deathless that's often talked about and pointed to that goes beyond even the death of our own body or those we love and and has a sense of equanimity even the face even in the face of things like that 
So equanimity with this okay, it's really being with how it is. A sense of, of peace and the ability to act from true wisdom and strength and balance and, and non-reactivity and to be able to be present with, uh, with that kind of, of peace and, and wisdom in our lives and, and on the cushion, even if difficult things are arising. So, um, so I'll go through the list now um, with all of the, of the factors. So we have mindfulness, which is here, investigation, what, effort, this, joy, yes, tranquility, ease, concentration, steady, and equanimity, okay. And um, the Buddha said that um, if you want to be involved in the ultimate, the ultimate sort of um, uh, aspect of Buddhism and of the human experience to cultivate the seven factors of awakening. And he talked about, uh, he used the analogy of a tree that like if the hindrances grow as large as a huge tree, like I live here near the redwoods and you know, if other plants around the redwoods don't have much of a chance. I mean, there's a few ferns growing down there, but not much can grow. So if our hindrances and defilements are like redwoods, there's not much room for anything else. They overshadow um, the seven factors. So they're like covers. You know, the word for, um, for hindrances actually is cover, the translation which to me really points to the hindrances like they're like veils they're not really real and if we you know if we cut the hindrances and really cultivate the seven factors instead though that's what we want to be like the redwoods we want to be the the, the redwoods to be the seven factors and the little ferns to be like our hindrances and defilements so you know what are what are we feeding in life and we really can um, we can be aware of these factors and really try to cultivate them in our practice and in our life as part of our of our journey of um, unfoldment and ultimately of liberation. So I'll stop there and see if there are any comments or questions. Katie, yeah. Hi. So I've wondered for a while, is there um, something in the connection with um, equanimity that it's a Brahma Vihara and a seven factor? Well, I think, um, you know, it's showing us the importance of it. I mean, some several of these are in some of the other lists, the, you know, the Eightfold Path and so on. Um, and equanimity is usually towards the end. So it's telling us, you know, it's the fourth, usually considered the fourth Brahma Vihara, that one that we would work up to. And, you know, when I'm teaching it, I really have come to see really clearly over the years and practicing it also for myself that it's hard to really feel equanimity fully unless we've, we're 
kind of landed in the other Brahma Viharas of, mm-hmm. of being in touch with how do I respond when there's suffering in myself or another? Or how do I respond when someone's having good fortune that I might be envious of or think they don't deserve it or something? Um, or what do I do, you know, when I just going around in life with metta, just while wishing for people? So equanimity really um, in the Brahma Viharas, it's uh, the practice is really about when things happen that we can't make sense of. Like, why is this happening? Why is this bad thing happening to this good person that I know? And I can't find an answer. And yet, if I'm waiting for everything in the world and in my life to be perfect before I can have equanimity or a sense of peace, I'm going to be waiting the rest of my life. You know, that's never going to happen. So, you know, how if we're waiting for the outer conditions to not have, uh, you know, to be perfect, we'll never have that. So really, equanimity is, and as a practice, it's offering us a practice that can help us be at peace even when things don't make sense or aren't really ideal and can i still within myself find a place of peace that can um can rest so yeah so it's you know it's at the end of this list and it's the fourth of the brahma vihara so it does also say that you know this is if if it's something that's hard for us to cultivate that's okay you know it's it's the hardest one because there are things that will get our specific um, attention and be trigger and those are the places to really work with equanimity i know for a lot of people um you know like being a parent and having a child that's suffering can be a place where it's it's very very difficult to have equanimity or you know just for any of us having a loved one who is suffering quite a lot and it seems you know so um, needless that can be very painful and yet we're going to be a better resource to that person if we have equanimity and can bring that to them So yeah, does that does that get to your question a little bit? Okay. Yeah, it does. It just when I um I sometimes do equanimity practice, and I notice that um one of the first things that falls away is judgment. Like it's it's a really um good practice for non-judgment. Yeah, that's beautiful. Right. Yeah, because if we have judgment, it's hard to have equanimity. Yeah. Because there's something in us that's, you know, judgment has is aversion. Mm-hmm. It's it's a form of aversion with a little bit of superiority and, and also some hatred in it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's gonna be really hard to have equanimity with that. Yeah, and it seems like it's so easy to spin those other things like judgment and hatred. Right. Yeah. And we're living in a world where that's gotten really rampant. You know, it's gotten a lot more um, volatile than it has been at some time. So, so being able to find a way to 
to separate, you know, to, um, to not, you know, what are we feeding? I mean, mm -hmm. what you're saying is a great example of not, not feeding the judgment, but feeding the equanimity and going, you know, whatever makes sense for the, a person. How, have you found anything that's been helpful for you to, to let go of the judgment and, and turn towards more the equanimity? Um, yeah, I, um, I have this practice where um, I go for a walk and I just decide I'm going to smile and say hi to everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I just notice when maybe that's a little bit more difficult or weird to me or um, yeah. So, so that's one thing that I do. And I guess I think of um, like that one story, I don't know it real well, so I might mess up all the names, but um, I think it was Akosha who was like the first king of India or something. Mm -hmm. And um, there's this story that says the reason why India became so largely Buddhist is because after um, winning some horrible and vicious war, this Buddhist monk came walking through like really all this horror, just really focused on getting to the king of India who had just, you know, with his armies destroyed all these people. Um, and he wasn't harping on the killing or um, how bad and wrong that was. He was just really um, full of his purpose, which was to go and teach the king of India about Buddhism. And so, but in that, have you heard this story before? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay, good. I really don't think I, I didn't think I was making it up. <laughs> yeah. Um, there might be somebody here who, who knows it in detail, but I think you've, you've captured it enough. Oh, yeah. Okay. Great. <clears throat> but um, yeah, I've just always been so impressed by that story. Mm -hmm. I just find it really moving. And so when when I find myself encountering something that I think is evil or gross or disgusting or so I, I kind of think of that. I think of mm -hmm. being able to, you know, walk through the battlefield or walk through something and kind of um not be in, in that aversion state. Right. Think of the yeah. single mindedness of that that then allowed for Buddhism to spread so widely. Yeah. 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 Thank you, Katie. Yeah, thank you. Nick, how about you? Hi. Um, I have a question about just dealing with uh, you kind of you touched on it in your talk a little earlier about just kind of disconnection when you start when some of these factors start arising more strongly in our practice, we can feel a bit disconnected from everyday life. Um, I was wondering if you had any tips for dealing for uh, moving through that in a positive way. So are you talking about um, as you're deepening in your practice, feeling disconnected from life? Or could you give me a little bit of context? Sure. Just um, it, it just the things that, that were so serious before that seemed so important that just were so pressing just kind of fall away. Mm. And you, real, you realize that, oh, it's, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, no matter, you know, it's just going to go along and it's going to be what it's going to be. And it just seems so disconcordant from our Western upbringing, you know, when we think nothing is going to be okay. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Yeah, yeah, that's true. As, as a person's practice deepens, I think I understand what you're saying. As our practice deepens and we start really, you know, living more the, the life of the Dharma, it can be, you know, there can be different, several phases really of adjustment where things that used to matter to us don't matter so much anymore. And, you know, sort of uh, a lot of the societal norms that we were all raised with that get placed on people just were not sort of as bought into that anymore. And maybe other people, you know, that we used to like spending time with that can start changing because our values may not be quite as aligned. Is this the kind of thing you're talking about? That's exactly it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this is really, this is one of the reasons it's so important to have Sangha. Mm. It, it really is. I, I, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one sessions with people and I was talking to someone today who I've been saying for, you know, several years, you need to find Sangha, you know, cause those like night and he, he did, he found some people that he's now in touch with from the last retreat he attended. So, you know, it's really important to have like-minded people and to come to things like this where, you know, you're around other people that, that are also care about these things and, um, and can, you know, we're sort of turning away from consensual reality in a way. And yeah. the, the deeper we go in that, the more we're turning away, you know, and then at some point we come back. So it's, you know, in, the, in Zen, there's the Zen ox herding pictures, if any of you have heard of that, where, you, you know, the Zen practitioner goes up to the top of the mountain and has all these realizations, then eventually comes back to the marketplace and nobody even knows he's different than anyone else. You know, he's just there in the market and doesn't need anyone to know, you know, but there is a whole process. At first, we have to be able to turn away because that pull of consensual reality and and um you know our consumerist culture in the west is you know that and the climbing the ladder and getting more stuff and all these things um it it takes a certain fortitude to turn away from that and it really helps to have sangha Thank you very much. That was a very helpful answer. I very much appreciate it. Sure. You're welcome, Nick. Thanks for the question. Any others? Okay, well, we're just about at the end here. So um, I hope this has been a, a good teaching for all of you. I've really enjoyed doing it. And um, and I will be talking about uh, then my next three, my next series of three um, talks is going to be on Samatha and Vipassana in Harmony. So um, uh, I get asked a lot about, uh, about Samatha and Vipassana together, how they fit. And most people, well, I mean, if you've been around me at all, you know that I practiced Vipassana exclusively for about 25 years before I even knew about Samatha. So I've, I've practiced Vipassana more years than Samatha, even though I, I teach Samatha more. Um, so 
how do they work together and how can we have a practice where there's fluidity between that as well as the brown vihars, but I'll mainly be focusing on those two. So I'll, I'll do one talk about Samatha, one about Vipassana, and then a third talk about how we can, uh, you know, move fluidly between them and, and or undertake periods of one and the other, but have them be harmonious in their, their functioning as part of our, you know, our array of practices that can all support us in different ways. And with the neuroscience, we know they're doing different things to our consciousness that are beneficial, both of them are. So, um, so those will be the next series of talks that I'll do starting next month in December. So as a closing then for this series, um, may the deepening of the seven factors in you be a blessing in your life as well as um, your interactions with the world. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.